Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series on the letters of Paul to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Let's continue our service with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with a with an incredible joy and thanksgiving upon our heart that you would count us, your creation, as as your sons and daughters, that you would love us to the extent that you would send your only son to the cross to become that sin offering for us, that we might be able to have that eternal security, that salvation that knowing that not only do we serve a living God, but that living God loves us so much that even the sacrifice of his son was not too great a price to pay for us to spend eternity with you. Be with us this morning as we continue on in the service, as we open up your word, as we read it, as we study it, and as we commit it, not just to memory, but to our hearts. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Well, last time I spoke, we were looking at the Psalms of the Ascent, and we went on a journey. Today, it looks like Paul has some home renovations in store for us in this part of his letter to the uh, Corinthians. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it breaks down into two parts. The first part, verses 1 to 10, connect with the idea at the end of chapter 4, of things that are eternal versus temporary. And then the second half, verses 11 to 21, Paul speaks of the reconciliation between God and mankind. Well, let's read the first half of this chapter, but we're going to start with the last verse in chapter 4. So 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 4, verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, But what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, as you know, the chapter and verse system that uh, has set about organized in the Bible was not part of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The system that was devised to make it easier to find a specific place in a book or in in a letter 
often has the challenge of where do you end one thought and start the next? Or where do you end one chapter and begin the next? Chapter 5 begins with the word now. It's connecting itself with what was said at the end of chapter 4. That is, do not be discouraged by the trials and challenges you face while you are on this earth. The world does this because it has nothing beyond what it sees from an earthly perspective. But rather, Paul says, look to an eternal future to be spent in the presence of God. What you do today has a bearing on the future eternity for Christians. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul goes on to reinforce that idea with an analogy. Paul compares the earthly dwelling place of our soul and spirit to that of a tent. Tents are temporary, although Abraham may have stated that otherwise, as he spent most of his life in a tent. But exceptions aside, tents are temporary. They're not permanent, and neither are our earthly bodies. The mortality rate of mankind is 100%. I only know of two people who ever beat those odds, Enoch and Elijah. For the rest of us, unless the rapture occurs during our lifetime, our bodies, our tents, as Paul puts it, will collapse and cease to function. But this is not what Paul looks to concentrate on in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul states that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul reminds his listeners that we long to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling or body. For while we are away from God, we are in our mortal earthly body, which Paul equates to being naked. And no one in their right, in their right mind wants to be found naked, especially in Timmins in January or February. The heavenly body that awaits the Christian is far and above anything we have on this earth. It's like trading up your vehicle. <clears throat> It'll be like trading in a Model T for something so much more spectacular, we don't even have an example to compare it to on this earth. In fact, it won't even resemble a car. If we refer back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 to 44, Paul kind of alludes to this when he says, There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We can get hung up trying to figure out what our Christian spiritual body is going to be like or look like. If that happens, we'll miss the point that Paul was trying to emphasize to the people in the Corinthian church. <clears throat> that is, what we do in our earthly tent or life on earth will have a bearing towards our heavenly house or place in heaven. <clears throat> Paul wanted his listeners to understand that in the life of each Christian, God has begun the transforming process that will one day culminate in the possessing of a heavenly body that will be in the likeness of Christ. And as Paul put it, God guaranteed the, guaranteed the surety of this happening by giving us his Holy Spirit as a deposit. 
The presence of whom and his transforming work in our life forms the beginning of this process when we accept Christ as our Savior. And his continued working in our life is guaranteeing the completion of God's gracious salvation. Paul started off his letter to the Corinthians with an admission that he had suffered greatly from the burden of evangelism and ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he said, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despised even of life. Last week, Carrie spoke in detail of how Paul focused on the positive instead of the negative to help him overcome the burden of ministry. Here in Paul's letter, he again gives his readers, and us centuries later, a glimpse into one of those things that helped sustain him in the depths of his ministry. That is, that our earthly tent is a temporary and transitory state. He lived in the present, but he focused on the future. As he said, not by sight, but by faith. And because Paul lived in the present while looking towards the future, he was able to speak with the confidence that we need to live in the light of the ultimate rather than the immediate realities. This is so different from the atheistic view that permeates North American culture. The philosophy that is becoming dominant in our culture today, if it's not there already, is that of, we just can't be sure of what there is beyond death. Is there nothing? If there is, we just don't know what it is. So much of the world's philosophy revolves around self-centeredness. The self-centeredness of, I should be able to do what I want, and you have no right to tell me otherwise. As well, we need to live for today, for tomorrow has no consequences. The self-centered attitude of this world is in sharp contrast to the servant attitude, not only taught, but practiced by Jesus Christ. But if you view Christ as God's Messiah, the one who came to redeem mankind of the sinful state, and if you put your trust in Christ, then you can have the same confidence in the future and the hope that is beyond the grave, just as Paul did. And as Paul testified, it's that confidence in the eternal inheritance as Christians that can sustain us through the darkest of times here on this earth. But I want to insert a caution here. It can be tempting to wear self-martyrdom as a badge or medal of honor on our chest. And what I mean by that is sometimes the trials and struggles that we face are not because we are following God's plan for our life, not because we are living by faith, but rather those trials and struggles are of our own doing. We ask God to bless our plans rather than to be a blessing for God's plan for us. In doing so, we mistakenly attribute opposition that we face as martyrdom on behalf of God, but in reality, what we're experiencing is simply the wages of our own disobedience towards God. And sometimes that disobedience is willful, and sometimes it's just out of ignorance towards God's word and leading in our life. It's always important to frequently make an honest evaluation of where we are in our walk with God in order to avoid falling into the trap of self-martyrdom. It can be hard enough to suffer for your faith in Christ, but it's far much more lonelier to suffer for our faith in ourselves. If we give ourselves 
our own performance reviews. We won't have to be concerned about what Paul has to say next in this chapter. And now we get to what for me is the most intriguing part of this half of chapter 5. And that's verse 10 when Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, <clears throat> that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Motivating Paul in what he did was his goal to please God. And contributing to that goal was the knowledge that one day he and the Corinthian Christians would stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be evaluated. What has to be established here is that Paul is not talking about salvation. When he used the word we in establishing who would stand before Christ and be judged, he was addressing his comment to those Corinthian believers and he was including himself in that group. There are other references in the Bible that speak of who will be judged on a broader form. But here in this instant, Paul was focused on those Corinthians who were already followers of Jesus Christ. And like Paul, the readers of this letter would have already had their salvation secured. Salvation is by faith is established in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere in the Bible. It's a gift emanating from the grace of God towards the repentant heart. Carrie spoke in detail of this as well last week. In fact, much of the first half of chapter 5 <clears throat> is in reinforcement of what Paul spoke of in chapter 4. But now Paul, dig Paul is digging deeper into future times. The Christian's eternal destiny will not be determined at the judgment seat of Christ, but the deeds issuing, or issuing from that faith will be evaluated. Now, people working in certain professions must go through performance reviews in certain intervals during their career. For some, it's a review of their physical abilities to perform certain tasks. Can they perform the duties that they need to, to a required standard, to a required level? For others, it's a review of their leadership capabilities, of how well they lead and work as a team. Performance reviews can be anxiety-producing events. Will I get promoted or will I get demoted? Will the one evaluating me be fair in their judgment upon me? Will I have to take remedial training to bring my skill set up to a required level? Paul gives the Corinthians some sound advice on how to prepare for theirs and our performance reviews with Jesus Christ when he said, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we, at, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. If your goal, if your desire is to please Christ both in your earthly tent and your heavenly house, then you do all right. None of us will stand in perfection when we stand before the judgment, the judgment seat that Christ will sit on. While we are on this earth, we will make mistakes, some small and some great. But if our desire is to follow Christ and it is put into practice under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and God's word in the Bible, then I believe we can all look forward to a favorable performance review at that time. But what does that mean? What did Paul mean when he said that each one may receive what is due him for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad? What exactly is due to us? when Christ judges us at the appointed time, and when will that appointed time be? Paul doesn't give specifics here. 
And this is the challenge of reading other people's mail. We don't have all the intimate knowledge that the Corinthians would have had in their relationship with Paul. In the personal instruction that Paul would have given them as he taught them beyond what is found in these two letters that we have. We don't even have all the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Perhaps Paul at some time was more specific of when he thought this judgment would occur and what the result of it would be. But we don't have that before us here this morning. Paul was obviously referring to a future judgment. Now, there are other references in the Bible to future times of judgment that were um, uh, mentioned by, by Paul and, and others, and each with their own context. And that can further complicate exactly what Paul was referring to here. For example, in Revelation chapter 20, John foresaw a future judgment. Here the book of life is mentioned and how the actions and decisions of mankind while they walk this earth will be judged. Another prediction of future judgment is found in Matthew chapter 25. It's the uh, parable of the sheep and the goats, in which Jesus described how he will separate those who will inherit eternal life from those who will inherit eternal punishment. Is there a time of judgment just reserved for Christians in which Jesus will review our performance that was here on earth and judge us accordingly and reward us accordingly? Or was Paul referring to a more broader time of judgment, such as those that are predicted elsewhere in the Bible by Jesus and John and others? I believe that though Paul doesn't specify it here, he is probably referring to a future time of judgment similar to those that are predicted elsewhere in the Bible. And perhaps even as that is predicted in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, which reads, The time has come for judging the dead. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, Revelation would have been written after the letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote, but it stands upon the same foundation of thought as the letter that Paul wrote that is known as 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spoke of the resurrection of the dead when he spoke of the natural body being raised a spiritual body. So it's likely Paul was referring to future events such as those prophesied by John. Now, it's important to understand that Paul was less concerned about the timing of when this judgment would occur, and he was more concerned that the Corinthians be prepared for it. What's more important in this judgment of when it will take place is the warning that Paul gave to be prepared for it by storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, because there will come a time when we will stand before Christ and there will be no more time left to do that. All final judgments deal with works. And keep in mind, we're not talking about salvation here. All final judgments deal with works. Whether the works of Christians rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ or the works of the unsaved, which will consist of great sorrow and great pain is expressed by the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth that is so often used in the Bible. Now, Paul was not the first to teach that we need to live our life today with one eye trained for tomorrow. The last two verses in the book of Ecclesiastes also speak to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 reads, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Likewise, Paul did not specify 
what will be received by the Christian, whether good or bad, as a result of their performance review with Christ. He merely states that they would be rewarded accordingly for their actions while they were in their earthly tent. Now, regardless of how you interpret verse 10 of this chapter, the final words in the book of Ecclesiastes needs to resonate in our lives as a warning for us today of what, to come in, of what is to come in the future. Now, all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Well, let's move on to the second part of this chapter, verses 11 to 21, where Paul speaks of the reconciliation of mankind with God. Reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11, then. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Throughout his description of his ministry in this letter, Paul has touched on the work of the Spirit. He's touched on the work of the Father. He's touched on the work of Christ. He also spoke of the eternal viewpoint required for the ministry to be carried out effectively as he did so in the first half of this chapter. And now Paul turns to the heart of what that ministry is. And that ministry is the message. Paul knew that his salvation and eternal destiny was rooted in his faith in Christ. The thought of one day standing before Christ awed him and it should awe all of us. Paul was zealous in whatever he did. Nobody could argue with that. He was zealous when he persecuted the followers of Christ before Jesus stopped him in his tracks on his way to Damascus. And he was equally as zealous now as a follower of Christ himself in his drive to persuade anyone who who would listen to be reconciled to God through Christ. In defense of his ministry and the message he carried to the Gentiles, Paul, unlike his opponents, Put no stock in credentials or associations. It was not the external that was authenticating the message that Paul presented, but rather it was the internal working of the Holy Spirit that not only authenticated the message, but also Paul as the bearer of that message. 
What Paul says next in verse 13 can seem kind of strange when Paul said, If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, was Paul really saying you have to be out of your mind to follow God? No, not at all. People today may say that you must be out of your mind because you follow God, but that's not what Paul was implying here. In order to affirm his sincerity, Paul was willing to be thought a fool, but he was not saying that he believed himself to be a fool. Paul could have also stated it this way, and this would be Paul speaking. People must think I'm crazy to follow God. Who but someone insane would show such disregard for his own life? Would a sane person willingly face a riotous mob intent on destroying him, as I did in Ephesus and Jerusalem? Or would someone insane go back into a city in which the people had just stoned him and dragged him out for dead, as I did in Lystra? It's not insanity that has caused me to do such things, but rather my devotion to God. Go ahead and let other people think I'm insane. But it is because of you in Corinth and those who I love as a father that I do such things. It is for you that I risk my life in order to bring you the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was being emphatic about his credentials as an apostle. He was not doing what he did as an apostle for fame or fortune. Rather, it was Christ's love for him that compelled him to continue in his ministry. And it is in these next verses that Paul expounds on the ministry of reconciliation itself. That is God's desire for those whom he created to be reconciled to himself. When Paul stated that, so from now on, we regard no one in a worldly point of view. He was indicating that he no longer evaluated people on the basis of externals. At one time, that's how Paul viewed Christ. Paul viewed Christ at one time that it was a man who was upsetting the balance of order among the Jews because of what he saw Jesus doing. He had information about Jesus, but that's not the same as believing in Jesus. Mere information about Jesus cannot transform a person from self-centeredness to selflessness. It takes the conversion of one's spirit to the sacrifice of oneself as a result of the repentant heart that allows someone to become a new creation. No one was more able to reflect on the transformation than Paul, who went from persecutor of Christ to proclaimer of Christ. Being in Christ was a phrase that Paul used frequently in his epistles or letters. Being in Christ means God's spirit dwells in us. There's a cohabitation going on in our tent. That's an interesting thought. We don't exist alone in a one-person pup tent. If we are in Christ, we share our accommodation with the Holy Spirit, which Paul had said earlier, God sent as a deposit guaranteeing of what is to come. Reconciliation with God involves removing the rebellious and sinful nature that makes us hostile towards God. This is one of the marvelous accomplishments of the divine nature of God on behalf of the person the moment they believe in Christ for their salvation. Just as the intricacy of the universe cries out the handiwork of the intelligent designer, likewise only Christ's work on the cross matches the fingerprints of God's redemptive grace. Because Christ bore mankind's sin upon the cross, those who believe in him are no longer objects of God's wrath to come. This brings everything into full circle this morning. 
We were once all separated from God, living in an earthly tent. But in the case of the Corinthians, a man named Paul came to them and taught them about the Messiah who was sent from God. The one who came to redeem mankind and make it possible to have an eternal house in heaven. But while we live in this earthly tent, we must be mindful of how our actions will have a bearing on things to come. But because we live by faith, not by sight, God sent someone, that is the Holy Spirit, to share our tent, to guarantee what is to come. And how it is through this reconciliation with God that makes us a new creation. The old Jim Melnick is gone. And a new Jim Melnick has taken his place. I don't look any different on the outside, but inside I've been completely renovated. I'm no longer the same. But while I remain on this earth, in this earthly tent, God has a job for me to do. And he has a job for you to do as well if you put your trust in Christ. All believers should serve Christ as his ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative to a government or a king. God has chosen us to bring his message of salvation to the world. Describing Christians as God's ambassadors is fitting as the Bible states that as Christians, we're no longer to be considered of this world. Our citizenship is now in heaven. Just as an ambassador for Canada resides temporarily in another country to be Canada's representative to that country, so we are on assignment while we live on this earth. It's truly awe-inspiring to think God would give us the assignment to be his representative among the lost to bring his message of salvation to all who would listen. The most important thing in a person's life has been entrusted to us. The message that we proclaim to those who will listen is this. You don't need to be righteous to come to God, but you do need to come to God to be righteous. Every dwelling needs to be maintained or even improved upon. Using Paul's analogy of our earthly body being a tent, we need to maintain it so that it doesn't leak. Nothing is worse when you're camping in a tent than to have it leak while you're trying to sleep. Few things are more important in our life while we live it on this earth than to maintain our earthly tent in a right relationship with God. We need to make sure it doesn't fall into disrepair. We need to make sure we don't fall into sin or into temptation. But not only should we be concerned with our earthly dwelling or tent, as Paul puts it, but while we are living on this earth, a new heavenly dwelling is being constructed. Only we're not the ones doing the constructing. God is the one doing the building. But we are supplying the materials, not bricks and wood, but rather, our heavenly house is being constructed with our actions, our words, and our thoughts while we are here on this earth. God will reward those who are faithful to him. I'll close in prayer, and while I'm doing that, I'll ask the uh, musicians to come back up for our, our closing hymn. Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful that you've given us your word that you've given us your spirit as that deposit of things to come. As you've given us a heavenly dwelling that right now at this very moment is being built, is being constructed for us. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to be like to live in it, to dwell in it. But I know it'll be wonderful. 
that will be more than anything we can ever appreciate here on this earth. Be with us, Lord. Encourage us. Admonish us. Teach us. Love us. That we may perform admirably as your ambassadors upon this earth. That we will carry out those duties that you have ordained for us. Help us to understand them. Help us to live them. Help us to be a light to the world. I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.